electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fortin, Deirdre Bosa. Today, the major indices slipping despite this strong start to the quarter. We're going to check in on a few sectors within tech, including some big calls today from Goldman on pins and take two. Plus, the state of hardware, stocks and consumer spend, a key theme going into Q4 and the holidays as the biggest names make big bets on their latest launches. John is live at the Made by Google event in Brooklyn, taking a look at the latest phones and watches, some of their uh, reported, at least, sales targets. D, going to get interesting. It will. First, though, uh, you probably know this by now. It is a fast-moving story with a lot of new details coming out, it seems like, by the minute. And that is, of course, the Elon Musk Twitter deal. The drama continues, and our own Julia Borston has the latest. Julia? Well, Deirdre, Elon Musk was scheduled for a deposition today. That deposition has not been happening. It has been delayed. But the trial, it is still scheduled to start on Monday, October 17th. And there is time to take his deposition in the next week if the two sides don't close the deal. Sources telling me that while Musk has agreed to a price, there still isn't certainty about the deal closing. And if the deal isn't entirely done, that the trial will go forward as planned. So I am hearing from a source close to the situation that in recent weeks, Musk's camp did look for a roughly 10% discount to the agreed upon a $44 billion price tag for Twitter. But now that Musk has agreed to the price, the question is how it financially gets done. While Musk does plan to cover much of the $44 billion by selling down his stake in Tesla, he did raise $12.5 billion from major banks, including Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, and Barclays, which each committed $2.5 billion. So the question is whether these banks could consider the drama of the last five and a half months to be a material adverse effect and to try to use that to walk away. The judge could, of course, force Musk to sue the banks, to demand that they follow through on their commitments. But what seems most likely is that the banks are simply bound to this merger agreement and they will simply take losses on this. But guys, the clock is ticking on getting the deal done before the trial proceedings kick off. Yeah, so Julia, we've certainly been here before, and it's no surprise that Twitter's focused on making sure that Musk actually follows through. That's why um, some skepticism has entered. You mentioned some of that as in the big bank financing. Um, I was seeing some reports that Twitter's actually trying to get that written down to ensure that this goes through. Things like supervision of the closing process and getting Musk to pay interest to compensate for delays. What are the, what's the likelihood that that could happen? Well, look, I think up until now, this was a deal between Twitter and Elon Musk. Now, for this deal to get done, it, there will have to be an agreement between the judge Twitter and Elon Musk. And Twitter is not going to let go of this trial, a trial that it seems like they feel very confident going into. They will not let go of that trial unless they feel like everything is signed, sealed, and delivered. And by delivered, 
Someone even said to me something about having money wired. So they are very serious about this deal being completed um, before they let go of that trial. Okay, so so Julia, obviously Twitter thinks that it has a strong case here. And you mentioned that Musk's camp was seeking about a 10 percent cut. Um, what's the thinking there that Twitter, you know, didn't want to do that? They obviously think that they have the strong chance here of, of this going through at the current price. And Musk offered that. Yeah. Absolutely. From the very beginning of that first moment when Musk showed hesitancy about not wanting to go through with this deal, I was hearing from sources that Twitter felt very confident that it had an ironclad deal. There was no reason they should have to expect accept a lower price point because they knew they had such a strong deal. And remember, a lot of this came through, came, comes back to the fact that Musk, you know, did not go forward with his option of doing due diligence. The fact that he foregone, he had foregone the option of due diligence really works in Twitter's favor on so many of these factors here. But why would they take a 10 percent discount? They're ready to go forward with the trial if they don't close the deal at 44 billion. Yeah, there's always that slight chance, though, that the board has to consider. Uh, pretty fascinating game theory here, Julia. Thank you. That's our Julia Borston. Speaking of Twitter and the digital ad market, Goldman today upgrading Pinterest and Take-Two to buy, both moving higher on that call today in a relatively rough tape. Joining us this morning is the analyst there, of course, Goldman's managing director, Eric Sheridan. Eric, great to have you back. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on, Carl. So before we get to the individual calls, does it say anything about how your universe is shaping up right now? Are you thinking about it differently, at least from a valuation perspective? Well, I would say that in the digital advertising space, our broader message this morning was generally as we went out and had ad industry checks through August and September, that things are nowhere as bad as feared out there from investors. I mean, this subsector within our coverage has performed very poorly in the last three months. There's almost a uh, set conclusion among investors that we're headed towards an ad recession. And I feel like I come on every couple of months and talk about how we're not yet in an ad recession and numbers are likely going to be better than feared. And I think as you look across the group, that's likely going to be a the case again with digital advertising. There's still strength in travel, the reopening around local, media and entertainment. And while there are some subsectors as advertising verticals like housing and autos that have gotten a little harder, generally we think the back to school e-commerce, some of these verticals came to the positive. And hence, we saw an opportunity in something like Pinterest to come off the sidelines and go from neutral to buy rated. Yeah, a lot of this is based on your third party work. And you're basically looking at better trends in user growth and engagement. And I, I, it sounds like some maybe a bit of share shift in terms of dollars. I think there's a couple things to point out on Pinterest. Short term, the user trajectory, the revenue trajectory, we think is going to be better than what the company guided in Q3 and much better than what investors feared looking out into the back part of the year. That's point number one. Point number two, you got a new CEO in Bill Reddy. Uh, Bill was out at our conference in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. Some of your colleagues uh, joined me out there at the conference. And I think Bill laid out a really interesting long-term narrative about where he wants to take Pinterest, uh, a focus around commerce, a focus around bringing more shopping to the platform. And we think this is really the future of Pinterest. It's not as much a social media company as we believe it's more of a commerce engine. So really what we're looking at is a reinvigoration of growth, an expansion of margin starting in 23 against a backdrop where we think numbers will be better than expected over the short duration. Hey, Eric, it's John Fort. Uh, you talk about 
Pinterest wanting to be a commerce engine at a time when uh, we're not sure how well that car is running overall in the economy. So I wonder if you have any sense from your checks on how this inventory imbalance that we've seen over the last few weeks is affecting and is going to, inf uh, to affect digital advertising through Q4 and possibly into Q1. Yeah, good, great question, John. I think two points to make. Number one, we see Pinterest coming off a low base. So when you're in advertising business and either turnaround or starting to monetize traffic that's been un or low monetized to date, the cyclicality of the industry just frankly impacts you less because you're coming off that low base. We're going to see cyclicality play out more among the bigger players in the sector, not the emerging players in the sector. That would be point number one. The other thing that came through in our advertising checks is that when you do have inventory, retailers and brands tend to be promotional. And as a result of that, we're seeing almost more money spent on the marketing side to clear that inventory ahead of the fall. And we made the point more broadly that we saw a pretty healthy back to school environment here in the U.S. That has a secondary read into the advertising market as well. So, Eric, it's Deirdre, by the way. Um, your takeaway this morning for the broader digital ad market, uh, you said it, that things are nowhere as bad as feared. And you've kind of seen this throughout your checks this year. Um, the fears have been overblown. But, you know, is it possible that the worst is yet to come? Many are predicting that we're going to be in a recession next year at some point. You said there's strength in travel. Is that the next shoe to drop? Why does that sort of make you feel confident about the future if we're entering a tougher time? Look, number one, digital advertising names tend to discount a recession almost six to nine months in advance. We saw this in 08 and 09. I've lived through both the last two pretty nasty cycles in the market. And I, and I think we're already getting stocks that are down 60, 70 percent off their highs as we exit this year and to move in next year. So I think some of that's already priced in to some degree. Yes, there could be slight estimate revisions down if the consumer really has dramatically changed behavior to the negative. But again, we think a lot of that's already priced in uh, from current levels. We are watching travel. That's a great point by you, Deirdre. You know, it is a, a discretionary purchase. It's an element. But as we look at even to the, the end of this year, we're not seeing a rate of change just yet. And we just heard again from some of the big travel companies at our conferences as recently as three weeks ago. Hey, finally, Eric, on take two, uh, you do talk about more normalized uh, growth dynamics, uh, the console cycle, finally uh, trying to do a catch up trade here. How durable do you think uh, this upgrade is going to be? Yeah, I think this is a multi-year uh, bull thesis. This is not a call on the quarter. Let's, let's, get, let's get that right out of the way. This is... Consoles were in a third year, but we're nowhere near what you would see in terms of units sold in the third year because of the dynamics around global logistics and global chips. There's a catch-up trade there that will have the publishers putting more content out in 23 and 24. Secondarily, they bought Zynga in the last year, take two. That act is acting as a headwind to growth now because mobile's going through post-pandemic normalization, and the Apple privacy changes acting as a headwind to mobile gaming. That all reverses as we move into 23, and they should be able to uh, take in some of the synergies of the Zynga deal. And then lastly, we provide a scenario analysis around the next version of Grand Theft Auto, and now that can put up push gap earnings uh, to $10 or higher uh, a couple of years out. Uh, you have been busy. Uh, appreciate the, uh, the caller around uh, Pinterest and Take-Two. Thanks, Eric. See you soon. Thanks for having me on. Eric Sheridan. Let's turn, yes, back to hardware. I'm at this Google hardware event in Brooklyn. Comes at uh, an important moment for consumer tech in Q4. 
Apple, how many iPhones will it sell, at what prices. Amazon refreshed its uh, services and devices line last week. And then there's Google here today announcing the new Pixel phones and watches. Next week, we're expecting an update from Meta on Oculus VR devices. And uh, right now, joining us, Joanna Stern from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, let's continue the conversation. Joanna, what does a, a win look like if you're not Apple, right, which is uh, done very well in both smartphones and in watches and wearables up to this point? What does a win look like when in this economy we're seeing the middle get hollowed out? You know, I was looking at some numbers, uh, Canalysis saying that the high end is selling, the low end is selling, the middle, not so much. So what, what do these folks have to do? Well, I think for where you're standing at the Google event today, it's a couple of points, a couple more market share points there, right? Right now they're at 2% in the US of pixel market share. Um, that is not a lot, but it's a big jump from where they were. And so when I caught up with Rick Ostrello, who is the, the lead Google hardware chief about these new products, I mean, he was pretty he was pretty clear and, and I think pretty honest to say, look, we're just trying to grow a little bit, little by little. And so I think here, as you're mentioning, if the growth is at the high end and at the lower end, that does make a little bit of a troublesome area for these pixel devices as they're priced sort of in the sweet spot in the middle end which we in the middle where we would usually say that's a great deal right these are starting at 5.99 8.99 respectively i mean they're good values for these phones and every time i review a pixel phone i say this is a great phone but most people are used to what they're <laughs> buying an iphone or a samsung that that used to be the same thing that you would have to say about Apple's computers, right? Oh, these Macs, it's a great Mac, but most people want Windows. So what's the strategic imperative? Talk now about Pixel Watch for Google to move forward with this, given, hey, they just cut Stadia, right? This is a time when companies are focusing yep. in on what's most important. Why are wearables so important for an ecosystem player? Right, it's all about that ecosystem. And I think that Fitbit acquisition is really showing right here on this Pixel Watch, right? Otherwise, this would just have been another Android watch that has not sold. I mean, look, honestly, Samsung has been trying to make the Android watches happen now for years, right? Here with the Pixel Watch, we have a real, real combination with the fitness features, which has been Apple's big marketing play on the Apple Watch. And so this is the first Pixel or Google piece of hardware to have the Fitbit in integration. And I think they're betting on that. Um, but really what they're trying to bet on is that ecosystem, right? You buy this phone, you buy this watch, they work the best together, just like Apple stuff. And in fact, when I caught up, caught up with Australia last week, I asked him very clearly, what about getting this watch to work with the iPhone? He says, doesn't work right now, but maybe one day, hopefully mm. one day. That's interesting um, because you would think that the watch is a way to maybe make customers loyal to that Android ecosystem, as you say, Joanna. Um, but put it sort of in the context, I, I feel like both Alphabet, Google and Amazon have different ambitions here, obviously, than an Apple. But it's really about that ecosystem, as you say. I mean, is Google's hardware just a means of showing off their software and Amazon their hardware means of showing off their prime flywheel? I think in Google's case, it's really, it is about computing, right? Every time I ask them, why are you doing this hardware, right? You've already, you're already on billions of devices. Everyone's using your, your apps. They're using all the infrastructure you've already built for the cloud. 
why do hardware? For them, they say it's about the future of computing, right? They want to keep making the actual hardware to in, to make the best software. So that's that's that, and they want people to buy it. On Amazon, totally agreed with you. It is a lot about getting people into their services. It's always been the case, right? Take a hit on the prices, right? You've got those dirt cheap Fire tablets. They're not the best made, but hey, they're great for kids because they can watch Amazon Prime. You can go shopping on there. There's the, the app store. And so it's all about the tie into the, as you said, the flywheel of Amazon. Keep getting people to buy, keep getting use those services. Joanna, what about defense? I think they, they like to say defense wins Super Bowls. And I think when it comes to technology ecosystems, there was a time when there was a concern that Samsung could come in, take over Android, sort of fracture it. But Google's been able, it seems, with Pixel to sort of have this. Well, if you, if you try to get too fancy uh, out there in the ecosystem, we've got the pure updates. We've got the security updates. People can always come back to us. Is this also a way of Google maintaining their sort of creative control and keeping all the ducks in a row within Android? Yeah, John, I'm going to come on this show for years and tell you every time I don't get the sports references, but I'm glad you keep trying. And one day you're going to invite me over for the Super Bowl and I'm going to understand what you are talking about. But yes, I think that's the case. And honestly, this is all trying to get and capture Samsung's market share, right? Pixel, Google is not even ranking on that global market share list anymore, right? They're not anymore. They never had that. So they are trying to work their way up. And how do they do that? They have to eat at Samsung. They have to eat at Xiaomi. But especially in the U.S., they've got to eat at Samsung. And it is about that ecosystem. It is about telling people, hey, you're going to get the updates with us. You're going to get the best Google experience just at the event that you're at right now. They spent, I would say, you know, 30, 40 percent of that time talking about machine learning, AI, sorts of features that only Google can do. That's exactly what Fitbit is talking about, too. When I talked to James Parkham from Fitbit, which I know you're going to be talking to later, he's emphasizing Google's AI prowess. Samsung can't do that. So now they've just got they've got a marketing problem. They have to convince users and customers we're the best Android to buy, not Samsung. Now, are they are they trying to battle Samsung here or are they trying to sort of thread that needle that Microsoft also had to try to thread with the Surface devices oh, yeah. where they told the OEMs, hey, look, we're, we're not trying to eat your lunch. We're just trying to raise the menu prices for everybody here. We're trying to bring in that premium diner. How much of that, I'm throwing all kinds of metaphors at you, Joanna. How, how much of that also is what Google is trying to do is establish some, uh, some Android device capabilities across the portfolio, whether it's smartphones, wearables, or home-based devices. You're, you're totally right. They have to toe that line. They have to do it really carefully. And I think it's, I, I'm going to throw another metaphor with you, just like, keep your enemies close, right? And that's what I think what they're doing here, right? They obviously benefit when Samsung sells. It's backed by Android. It's backed by all the Google services. So, of course, it's good when they sell Samsung phones, but they want to sell more Google hardware. That is a bigger profit margin for them. That does more to push people into Google's ecosystem. Mm. And so, I really think it's a case of, hey, keep your enemies close. Uh, Joanna, finally, I want to turn the conversation to the role of proprietary chips and big tech hardware. Of course, we spent a lot of time talking about the M1 and M2 for Apple, what that's been able to do. Uh, Google has the Tensor, which is going to be in the new lineup of Pixels. And also, you know, so what does that mean? But what does it mean also for Meta that they haven't been successful in developing their own in-house chips for their own AI metaverse ambitions? 
Yeah, you've got to have a chip now. That seems to be the case. If you are making your hardware and you're making your software, the investment that people are making or the companies are making into these chips seems to be substantial because they believe it is going to put the best combination of all these things forward. With Meta, they do not have that infrastructure, and it will take many years to get to that. Um, we will see next week, We will time will tell, if their new Cambria headset, the one they've been talking about, um, what chip is powered by that, likely to be Qualcomm, as they've been using in the Quest uh, Pro, or sorry, the Quest uh, 2 that's out now, or the Oculus Quest. Um, so we'll see what, what ends up happening there. All right. Joanna Stern from The Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Still to come this morning, uh, Evercore taking over, taking the over on cybercrime. We'll find out which names they're betting on and why as they initiate a bunch of names. Tech Check is just getting started. Ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Three things in life are certain, death, taxes, and cybercrime. That's Evercore ISI today, initiating on a bunch of cybersecurity names. CrowdStrike, Zscaler, Palo Alto, all at outperform, arguing their strong, durable trends, even in a tough economic backdrop. The one underperform is Okta. Quote, given the recent missteps and lack of execution, Okta has a long road ahead to clean up the narrative and regain credibility with investors the price target there, 45, would be another $12 to the downside. Yeah, Okta is a good warning um, on how M&A activity making acquisitions, even when you see value in these markets, can be difficult for companies. That's really where they've struggled. It's been a rough year. Um, but certainly hear that sentiment here on the ground in San Francisco that you don't cut back on cybersecurity, even if you're looking to cut costs and look to cut some of those enterprise software costs. Speaking of cybersecurity, our next guest, he is betting big on data names. Think Snowflake, Datadog, MongoDB. And while you're at it, take a, take a look at shares of Splunk moving lower on a UBS downgrade. Uh, UBS argues that while Splunk blamed its recent guide down on the macro picture, UBS industry checks have flagged several other sources of pressure. You can read more at CNBC.com. Those shares down nearly 5%. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Tech Check.
Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. John is live at the Made by Google event in Brooklyn today. We're going to be talking with Fitbit co-founder James Park later on this hour. And Index Ventures' Mike, Vol- Mike Volpe is going to join us to break down why he's betting on some data names in just a moment after a news update with Contessa Brewer. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Carl. Here's what's happening right now. The White House is pushing back at OPEC after the oil producer group made the decision to reduce its oil production target by 2 million barrels per day starting in November. In a statement, the White House said President Biden is disappointed by the short-sighted decision and hinted that Congress would soon act to rein in OPEC's influence over energy prices. Meanwhile, Biden is traveling to New York today to highlight the ways the CHIPS Act is working, and he's pointing to IBM's plans to invest $20 billion in the state over the next decade tech giant is planning to develop and manufacture semiconductors, although, of course, New Yorkers might remember when IBM was a powerhouse employer here and then wasn't. The U.S. labor market illustrating its strength in September with private companies adding 208,000 jobs for the month. That number better than the 200,000 Wall Street was expecting. Trade, transportation, utility sectors led the way with the highest gains. And Ford is hiking the starting price of its electric F-150 Lightning pickup for the second time in less than that many months. Prices for the 2023 model year will increase $5,000 for a total of nearly 52,000 bucks. Current retail holders and customers with scheduled orders apparently won't be affected here. Deirdre, I'll send it back to you. Contessa, thank you very much. Let's turn now to the cloud. Our next guest says, brace yourself for more M&A with names like Snowflake and MongoDB emerging as the next generation of data companies. Joining us now, Index Ventures partner, Mike Volpe. Mike, it's great to have you in studio and see you again. It has been a while. Um, So we've been talking about this. This space is ripe for consolidation. You just had so many software startups, IPOs over the last few years. But you think it's actually going to be some of these larger cap players, not the mega caps, they're going to, are going to be doing the consolidating. Yeah, I mean, I think what you see going on in the market are the large players, Google, Amazon. Uh, these players that we've been talked about a little bit are trying to get into, uh, go up the stack. So they've built clouds. The clouds have computing, they have storage, but they're going up and building databases and other data systems. Meantime, you have companies like Snowflake and Datadog, which are best-of-breed providers. Interestingly, they live on top of the cloud yeah. players, right? So they sort of rent the space to, to be in their own business. But they're generally winning, and I think eventually there's going to be more and more conflict between the two. And the guys like Snowflake and Datadog and MongoDB, which are these next-generation modern data companies, are going to want to expand their portfolio. They're going to want to make things simpler and more integrated for their customers. And obviously some of that will come from R&D, but some of that's likely going to come from M&A. It feels like there's a disconnect right now, though, because you saw sort of these peak share prices at the end of last year, and they've all come down. So the acquirer wants to pay that lower price. And the target, let's say some of these software companies, they don't want to sell where they are now. This is, you know, some of them are at their 52-week lows. Um, 
when does that start to happen? Is that why we haven't seen more M&A activity so far? When does finally these targets say, OK, we might as well sell now because it looks like it could be a hard road? Yeah, I think it's totally fair that companies that have been trading at three times or twice their valuation are sitting there saying, I don't think I want to sell at this price. Uh, I, I do think that you're going to see some privates potentially go first. And you know, obviously last week we saw the Figma acquisition, which was kind of interesting. But I think you're going to see a little bit of that. Um, but eventually these valuations will settle in and people will realize that the company is worth what it's worth, um, at which point the larger players will have an advantage to, to, to bring these companies in. Mike, to just push a little deeper on that, uh, I find this fascinating because how do you define a larger player? And in some past cycles, both in consumer and enterprise, it's been dominant players that have driven consolidation. I'm thinking about Oracle with PeopleSoft, Siebel, et cetera. Uh, you know, then Google with Blogger and YouTube and DoubleClick. But in this situation, as I believe you've alluded to, the mega caps are kind of constrained because they, they've got kind of monopoly watch on them. They're not going to be able to be the ones consolidating. So who's big enough to do that? Uh, but small enough not to trigger regulator concerns. Yeah, well, first, I think you're absolutely right. It's very difficult for you know, Microsoft, uh, Google, and Amazon AWS to think about being consolidators from a regulatory perspective. They're going to be watched like hawks. Um, the players that are emerging right now, you're starting to see these next generation modern data companies creep up from the you know, single digit billion market caps to 30, 40, 50, 60 billion dollar market caps. Once you get to those kinds of numbers, you have the, the financial wherewithal to buy something. And let's say if it's a stock to stock deal, you, you know, you're giving away maybe 10 percent or 20 percent of your market cap, which is certainly a bet. It's not trivial at all, but it's definitely doable relative to you know, being a 10 billion dollar company, in which case you're sort of hamstrung a little bit in terms of in terms of pulling something off. So it's really about the larger, bigger players that are going to start to do this. And my guess, they'll start small with some privates and some of the stuff they've already been doing, but they'll move up to bigger and bigger players. Hey, Mike, quick question on demand. Uh, Goldman does some work today looking at companies that are expecting a recession versus those that don't. And obviously, not surprisingly, those that do expect one have some much worse CapEx plans going forward. Is the thinking that when it comes to cloud, it will be the last to get sacrificed if things are tight? I think so. So if you look at what's been happening over the last five or six years, you know, the core big tech companies have figured out long ago that data and cloud are fundamental to their long term success, understanding customers, running efficient businesses and so forth. That trend has migrated to the Fortune 1000 and those Fortune 1000 companies need the same technology, which is what people like Snowflake and Datadog provide. They are cloud technologies. Uh, they are data technologies. I think that that theme is so powerful right now that it overrides any economic cycles and they will continue to do spend. Now, recessions will obviously hurt everybody a little bit if they do happen. But the reality is that type of momentum, that strong wave of secular spend on cloud and data, it's not going away anytime soon. And that consumption-based model that the likes of Snowflake and a few others has actually proven to hold up pretty well in the current environment. Absolutely. I mean, consumption-based is fantastic because you used to sell software saying, buy all this software and let's see if you use it. So you ended up with right. the so-called shelfware problem. That completely removes consumption-based models, totally get rid of shelfware. So customers are much more likely to say, okay, great, listen, I'm only paying for what I buy. I'm happy to pick it up right now. Now, if you're expecting M&A in the sector and it's going to be the MongoDBs, the Snowflakes, um, the Datadogs that are going to be doing it, um, 
there's risks associated with that if you're an investor. You were at Cisco for over a decade. You ran the M&A group for a number of years. Um, so you know the rewards, but you also know the perils. We just talked about one case study, Okta and Auth0. They've had a lot of trouble with integration. The mega caps are better at this. They have more experience. Um, why should investors think that some of these newer companies are going to be good at integrating? Well, first, it's important to recognize that Acquisitions are easier than mergers. The more the companies are of about the same size, that's super hard to pull off. And then the second thing is you can't be too opportunistic about M&A. In other words, you can't just say one morning, ah, oh, this thing is for sale, I'm going to buy it. You have to have a long-term strategy that says, here's how my product evolution works, here's how the different pieces fit in, and then just go step by step and execute on that vision. If you do it too haphazardly, if you do one-offs, like the case of Okta, very, very hard to make those work. They're hard anyway, and that makes it even harder. Hmm. Okay, great insights. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us in the studio. Absolutely. We'll talk to you Always again soon. Be here. Mike Wolpe. Carl. That was fa fantastic. Uh, coming up, uh, more on the competition in devices, phones, and wearables. We'll talk with the founder of Fitbit and talk about Google's hardware strategy when TechCheck comes back. Welcome back. I am here outside the Google store in Brooklyn, about a block away from where Google just announced the Pixel 7 and Pixel Watch, key elements of the latest mobility and hardware strategy. And with me is James Park, co-founder, CEO of Fitbit, which is now part of Google. Uh, James, well, first of all, here's, here's the watch. I got it on. Um, kind of put it on backwards so people can see. It, you know, circular shape, it's got a, te a teardrop or sort of droplet uh, sort of effect on it. Tell me first of all, what Fitbit has become. It's sort of an ingredient of the Pixel Watch, but it's still its own device as well. How is it working within Google? So I think the key thing that we're announcing today along with uh, a series of Pixel products is as you mentioned, the Google Pixel Watch. And I think the key thing is that it combines the best of Google and Fitbit together in a device that's truly beautiful and really personal. So on the Google side, there's a lot of helpfulness. You can get Google Maps, Google Calendar, uh, the Google Home app to control your smartphone, uh, the YouTube Music app as well. And uh, importantly as well, you get the full Fitbit experience on a wearable with this product as well. So not only uh, you know, great heart rate, it's the best heart rate experience that we've developed, but you get health features like active zone minutes, the sleep score, daily readiness score, et cetera, uh, really to give you the best uh, health and fitness insights, whether you're sleeping at rest or working out. Right, so why has the Android watch experience been so difficult to scale up and how does this combination solve it, right? I mean, you had Samsung trying, others trying earlier on, and it never really seemed to get the full sort of focus, direction, and traction that I'm sure you're hoping it does this time. Yeah, so I think Google's been waiting for the right moment. And you know, one of the killer features of a smartwatch is a truly world-class health and fitness experience. And I think once Fitbit became part of the Google family, that was really the key missing piece. And you know, that enables us to create a product that really solves a lot of day-to-day -day problems for people with great experiences, whether it's you know, general purpose computing and utility, 
or as I've mentioned before, health and fitness. What are you finding is driving the consumer appetite for devices and experiences within the ecosystem? I mean, Google's got the smart home stuff, got the Pixel stuff, there are other Android phones out there, now there's the watcher. Are people who already uh, have some smart home devices more likely to pick up a wearable? How, how, does that, how does that work? I think the key is making all of these things work together. They're not just pieces of technology. So Google is really investing in this vision of personal intelligence. It's to take all this incredible technology and put it together in experiences that work across devices to help people solve day-to-day -day problems, whether they're big or small. In a slowing economy, when the concern is that people are going to trade down or that the premium's just gonna stay premium with known brands, how do you have to uh, address the price, the price point, and what's the most effective way to reach a consumer who's not satisfied with the watch experience yet? Yeah, absolutely. So the key thing here is that Google is investing in a portfolio of devices on the wearable side. So the Google Pixel Watch is our premium flagship watch, but we also have a portfolio of other wearables at different price points and form factors, so people can really choose which device is best for them. But what about the economic situation, right? Because we're, we're, we're in a slowing economy where, yes, some people are still buying premium devices, but th the middle is sort of getting hollowed out. How do you position the wearable, which some people might see as a nice to have and not a have to have, so that it's appropriate for this time. Yeah, so for us, the mission is also about improving people's health as well. And obviously we wanna make these devices as available, affordable, and accessible to as many people as possible. So at the premium end, we do have the Google Pixel Watch starting at 349, but we also have products like Fitbit Inspire at $99. So, you know, just, you know whatever you can afford, there's really gonna be a health and fitness and wearable solution for you. Hey, James, it's Deirdre in San Francisco. Good to see you. Um, so, you know, obviously with Fitbit, there was a kids lineup, and I wonder if there's plans for a Pixel lineup for kids, because if it really is all about, you know, introducing people into the ecosystem, um, Apple Watch has been so successful with that younger generation, parents buy it for their kids. Is that something that's in the cards? You know, our portfolio is always going to be evolving over time, but today we do have a great solution for kids, which is the Fitbit Ace product. And that's done really well. And I'm, I'm really proud of that product because I think getting kids healthy is just a really, really important mission. Uh, and so when you look at the spread in the various products that you've got, how do you evaluate which are necessary and which can sort of afford to be even consolidated. I mean, th there seems to be a lot of rationalizing happening in product lines right now. How, how do you stay disciplined in that? Well, definitely portfolios of products evolve over time, and we do a lot of uh, user research and market research to help determine which products make sense and which don't. Um, but again, I think the portfolio approach that we're taking, not only in wearables, but in other parts of the Pixel portfolio, uh, you know, really speak to that. What's the retail strategy? Getting your hands on these devices, literally, and trying them on is, is increasingly important as things get mobile and things get wearable. How are you approaching it? Absolutely, for wearables, the, the in-person experience is really critical. So we do have Google stores today. We're at one today where you can experience all of our devices in person. But uh, whether it's a Pixel device or Fitbit device, there's tens of thousands of retail locations around the world where people can come in and see these experiences for themselves. James, finally, for branding purposes, I know that you have, or Google still has the Fitbit line, but now the Pixel line. 
Do they eventually merge? What do you think happens ultimately to Fitbit? How do you feel about that eventually going away and just having the Pixel Watch for kids, for adults, a lineup under that sole name? Yeah, so the Fitbit brand will continue, um, not only in our devices, but also, uh, more importantly, the app experience as well. And again, we're taking a portfolio approach where we're trying to develop products that resonate with you know, people, whether they're looking for a premium smartwatch or something smaller or more affordable. Uh, you know, we're hoping to have a solution that really works for them. James Park, uh, co-founder of Fitbit, thank you for Great joining us on TechChat. One consumer name seeing strength this week. That's Etsy, one of the biggest gainers on the S&P this morning and up roughly 15% this week. It comes after Guggenheim assumed coverage at Buy on the Stock Monday. Those shares, you can see, wow, up nearly 15% on the week. We'll return in just a few minutes. with Twitter, but let's get a gut check on the actual company Elon Musk controls right now. Deutsche Bank adding Tesla to their list of fresh money ideas for the year ahead. They call the EV maker, quote, one of the most attractive stories in autos right now. One of the main reasons behind that call, the Inflation Reduction Act, predicting those production credits are going to help cut costs and boost margins. Take a look at the stock here, though, lower again today, down 40 percent year to date. John, down about 24 percent in two weeks. Yeah, um, that is <laughs> tends to be an indicator of both strength and risk, Carl. Meanwhile, uh, Compass pointing north down from the highs of the morning, but still up double digits after reports that Vista Equity Partners looking to take that company private. The real estate brokerage firm denying any talks, but it is a prime target for acquisition, perhaps falling about 85 percent since its IPO last year, along with a lot of growth stocks. We will be right back. Choppy session for the broader markets, but let's check in on delivery stocks. It is no secret that Uber and DoorDash have taken some big hits this year in terms of their share price. So what does that mean for Instacart when it goes public? The company has already slashed its valuation by nearly 40 percent to $24 billion internally. But our friend Laura Foreman at The Journal looked at available comps today and found online food stocks generally trade between 0.3 times to 2.3 times enterprise value to forward sales. Now, Instacart, it does have an ad business. We don't know exactly how big that is. But even if you apply a Google-like ad multiple premium and annualize Instacart's Q2 growth, that enterprise value lands at around $13 billion. And that is significantly less than where it started the year and less than that cut internally it already made. We'll continue to track that IPO. Remember that Instacart has filed confidentially and is reportedly looking at this quarter 
to potentially tap public markets. Speaking of delivery as well, there's another battle between former Uber CEO Travis Kalanick and food delivery apps like Uber. A Kalanick-linked lobbying group is challenging the app, according to the FT, on delivery fees that they charge and customer data they control. Now, it all has a goal of helping companies like Kalanick's cloud kitchens business, guys, that have raised a lot of money. It's very interesting to see Kalanick on the other side of this, if it's true and he still has that fight in him, you got to wonder if his tactics are going to change. He's a good, in a good person to argue for more access to data, lower fees, sort of help the restaurants amid this huge shift, this digital shift that we've seen. Um, can he do it with more tact, John, than he did at Uber, fighting regulators and, you know, lobbies? Yeah, people change, but th there are other people also who have taken sort of that uh, aggressive bro mantle off of him. I mean, we've seen the, the rise and fall of Adam Newman and perhaps rise again. We'll see Elon Musk has been banging the drum on Twitter and then buying the drum, it appears. Uh, so Travis Kalanick, I mean, he's looking like <laughs> Madeleine Albright, perhaps, if he reemerges at this point. <laughs> Well. Good point. Um, good point. You know, it does raise questions, though, about their profitability, right? We've been talking about this a ton for Uber and DoorDash. Um, still losing quite a bit of money. The unit economics are getting a little bit better. They have trended better. But, of course, fees and for the delivery side of this, as well as that user data, how does that change the equation? Yeah, we'll see how the partnerships hold up. Interesting shift DoorDash, Walmart sort of breaking up, but then getting together with Sprouts and others, as we were just talking about uh, last month. Meanwhile, if you missed any of the tech checks, you can follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. thing before we go is Peloton spinning out. CEO Barry McCarthy saying it will cut another 500 jobs, 12% of the remaining workforce. The journal says he's giving the company another six months to turn itself around. And if that fails, he says it, it's likely it isn't viable as a standalone company. Stock has lost about three quarters of its value year to date. Uh, Truist today, though, uh, D says maybe the journal misinterpreted some of those comments. Uh, they look at some of the liquidity, uh, undrawn revolvers, says they can, they have ample liquidity to go beyond six months. What a thing to say. Um, I appreciate the candid comments, but it does lead me and I'm sure many others to believe what happens after six months. John, I'm worried for my instructors, Cody Rigsby, Jess Sims. What's going to happen to them in six months? And Matt Wilpers. <laughs> Pre yeah, premium hardware is Peloton's business. This other, you know, services stuff, I don't think it's got legs, Carl. You just see Google and Fitbit getting together. They could jump into that in a second. Good stuff today, guys. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.